Beloved, ontological equality does not abrogate hierarchical functionality. I thought I'd throw that out in case you had too many hot toddies last night to wake you up. In other words, our equality in worth and essence, male and female being made in the image of God, uh, does not in any way undermine or take away the gift that God gives to institutions, to the family, to the workplace, to a society, to the church. He is not a God of anarchy and chaos. So he gives a hierarchical role relationship, man and woman, male and female, husband and wife, mother and daughter, father and son, employer and employee, shepherd and sheep. This is a gift from God. It is right and appropriate. And again, these structures that he puts in place doesn't take away from the equality and value of every soul, every man and woman made in the image of God. And this is right at the heart of what the Apostle Paul brings out to the Thessalonian church. Please open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. As the Apostle Paul is drawing towards the close of the letter, what he does here is, as he's writing to this young church, this example church, this model church, it's a church that he had told them opened up that is a church that is loved by God and chosen by God in chapter 1. He talked about what a, in a necessary defense that he had for himself and Silas and Timothy and their ministry for the sake of the gospel and for the name of Christ. He described for the church what a model shepherd looks like and even what model sheep looks like. And then in chapter 4, verses 1 through 12, he began a list of exhortations to the church. And then he went on a somewhat extended end times interlude from chapter 4, verse 13 through chapter 5, verse 11. Here, as we pick up our text in chapter 5, verse 12, he picks up those exhortations. And what he does here is he gives a conduct manual for the sheep and for the shepherds, the leaders and the led. This is a manual of conduct, a manual of behavior that is pleasing to God, that is giving glory and honor to the most high creator God of the universe. And what he says in essence is respect your leaders in verses 12 and 13. Love your brethren in verses 14 and 15. And that is our passage this morning, uh, 13, excuse me, uh, 12 through 15. And then in verses 16 through 22, he wraps it up by saying, glorify your Lord. This is what he tells these Thessalonian believers, this congregation. Beloved, I'm going to read verses 12 through 22 so that we have the entire context. But again, our passage this morning are the first four verses. This is the word of God, 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 12. Paul says, But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and who have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction, and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Live in peace with one another. And we urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, Help the weak, be patient with all men. See that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all men. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, 
In everything, give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterances. But examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Beloved, this is the word of the living God read in your hearing. Please attend to it as such. And may God add his blessing to its reading. Now, what Paul does here is he gives two words to the body, two words to the Thessalonian believers. He says in the first two verses, 12 and 13, respect your leaders. And then in verses 14 and 15, he says, refine your brothers. Now, this address is to the body. It's to the congregation. It is to the members. The leaders are part of the congregation, of course, but the direct address is to the congregation, the members, the sheep that are in the body being led by the shepherds. And what this really is, this is the formula for a healthy church. It's, it's a uh, recipe that he says, here are the ingredients you put in for a healthy church. And I'll even say this is one ingredient you should not put in there. Now, for the Thessalonian church in the context, really what he's saying is this is the formula for how you will stay healthy, how you will stay a model church, how you will stay an example church. And so for us at our beloved Santan Bible Church, a healthy church, this is how, dear brother and sister in Christ, we will stay healthy as a church at Santan Bible Church. So let's look at this first word that the apostle gives to the church of Thessalonica, the first word that God gives to you and me here at Santan Bible Church, namely for you, respect your leaders. Paul begins, look at verse 12, but we request of you, brethren. This is a respectful request. This is a friendly appeal. Uh, The mighty apostle Paul gently nudges the Thessalonian believers with a polite request. And he says, but we request of you, brethren, brothers and sisters. Brethren, that's masculine, but it includes brothers and sisters. And we have seen this, this word brethren, used throughout the letter to the church in Thessalonica, even more frequently than we usually see in Scripture. Five times in these final words we will see it. Here in verse 12, verse 14, and then verses 25, 26, and 27. And this is all part of the pattern that we are the family of God. In Scripture, even when we think of the leadership structure of the family, of the biological family, that parallels the leadership structure of the family of God. In the first 11 verses here in chapter 5, we were told by God through the writing of Paul that you are of the day. You are not of the night. So also, in the same way that we are of the day, so also we are of the family of God. We belong to the day, and we belong to the family. And so Paul gives a friendly appeal to the congregation. Respect your shepherds. He wants them to show an attitude, two attitudes really, an attitude of appreciation in verse 12, and and an attitude of affection in verse 13. And this is something that he wants them to appreciate here in verse 12, God's gift of leaders. He wants you, God wants you to appreciate his good gift to you of leaders. Now again, when we think of the different framework of institutions, government, companies, and so forth, the 
gift of the structure is from God. It might be difficult for us to think when we think of our government or different governments to actually think of that as a gift, but that is because the alternative is anarchy and chaos. And this is even what Paul brought out when he will later write to the church in Ephesus. In Ephesians 4, verses 11 through 13, there God says through Paul to the church in Ephesus, he describes the gift of leadership to the body for the sanctification of the saints, for the growth, the spiritual growth of the body. That is the dynamic here, and that is why he says, again looking at verse 12, we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those that you give deserved recognition to, respect. The Greek word translated as appreciate is one of the two Greek words that literally means to know, to know. And it's actually interesting. This is a very unique usage of this Greek word that means to know. It's the only place in the New Testament where here the New American Standard captures it well in the context. It means not just know, but to recognize, respect, to appreciate. It's interesting, we often hear the well-said statement that ministers, elders, leaders, pastors should know the congregation. What God brings out here is the congregation should know their leaders. You should know their leaders. And this kind of knowledge leads to recognition and appreciation. It leads to respect. It leads to esteem, we will see in verse 13. It leads to love. Now for these Thessalonian believers, we need to remind ourselves that they had been saved less than a year. They'd been saved for months at most, and their founding shepherds had been taken away from them by persecution. Paul, Silas, and Timothy had been driven out by virtue of persecution, yet this brand new months-old church has known and identifiable leaders. And what he is saying here is he wants this kind of attitude of appreciation for them. So we see the attitude of the sheep, but also we see here in verse 12 the activity of the shepherds. Now, to be sure, the main thrust of God's word here is to the sheep, but there are great insights here regarding the shepherds. And mark this, the Christian leadership is more about action than it is about position. Shepherds, God's shepherds, lead, feed, care for, and protect the flock. And what Paul does here is he highlights three activities of the shepherds. While he's emphasizing not their position, but what they do, what is characteristic of not just Paul, Silas, and Timothy when they were with the church for several weeks, but even the existing leaders that the body knows what they do on a regular basis. Namely, your leaders serve they oversee and they admonish. The church leader equips the body for ministry, shepherds the flock of God that is among them and instructs them in the faith. So we have here in God's word to the sheep, the first activity of the shepherd is they serve. Literally, they work themselves weary. Beloved, God encourages you to appreciate and esteem your leaders, not based on the dignity of the office, but on the difficulty of the labor. Now, there is a place to show respect to the office, to the office that God has put in place, but that is not at all what Paul brings out here. He wants you to esteem and to respect your leaders based on the difficulty of the labor. That's why he says, look at the text, those who diligently labor among you. 
He doesn't say who diligently, diligently labor over you or away from you, but those who diligently labor among you. In other words, the shepherds are not detached from the sheep. They are down in the trenches. They are alongside the congregation. And even this is another reminder for us that the chief trait of the man of God, the chief trait of an elder, of a pastor, of a shepherd is humility, not authority. The greatest, of course, example we can think of is our chief shepherd, Jesus. Our chief shepherd, Jesus, gave the ministry and gave the responsibility of serving and shepherding the flock of God to his people, to those that are bought by him. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's the pattern that we have right here. One preacher said that the uniform, I like this, one preacher said that the uniform of a pastor is not a badge, but an apron. Because he who would be first must what? First be a slave of all. This is servanthood and this is self-sacrifice. When he says those who diligently labor, the Root meaning of that word diligently labor means to strike or cut down. This is diligent, strenuous labor, laborious toil and struggle. Now the word's used 19 times in the New Testament, not so much to mean the actual exertion by the man, but rather the exhaustion that that exertion produces, that he experiences as a result. That's interesting. Paul is as likely, when Paul uses this word many times, he's as likely to use this word to describe the hard manual labor of farming as he is to describe the hard manual labor of shepherding. Beloved, the point here is this. Ministry is not a walk in the park. It is a march through a battlefield. Whether it's sermon preparation, visiting the sick, counseling the disturbed, instructing for marriage or baptism. It is a toil and it is a labor. That's why Paul will later write to Timothy and instruct Timothy to, by extension, instruct the church in Ephesus, 1 Timothy 5.17, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. You see, a biblical shepherd sacrificially sweats for his sheep. True ministry is hard work. It's a product of hard labor. And even this is part of what Paul did earlier in the letter when he was forced to defend himself and his colleagues. Why he wrote back in chapter 2 verse 9, he said, you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, He was describing the effort and the pain, the weariness and the hardship. You see, there is a sweat equity involved in biblical ministry. And this is the first activity, the first characteristic that Paul uses to fuel the fire of encouragement and appreciation on the part of the people. I like the axiomatic statement that I think is very well said that if you want something to get done, if you want a job to get done, give it to a busy man. And there's a great truth to that. I like what Calvin said, kind of in the same vein, but in this context here. I love this quote. Calvin said, all idle bellies are excluded from the list of pastors. You see, bottom line, leadership, leadership in any institution, in a corporation, on a sports team, most importantly, of course, in the church, leadership is not for the lazy. 
And that's why Paul brings us out the way he does here. And beloved, you will know your shepherds. You will recognize your shepherds because they're the ones doing the work of the ministry. They are the ones exerting the spiritual energy and spiritual effort. So that's the first activity of the biblical shepherd that Paul brings out, they serve. The second activity that the apostle brings out here is they oversee. He says, continuing on in verse 12, and have charge over you in the Lord. And stand before you in the Lord. Stand before you in the Lord. Now this word that's translated have charge over, it was used in the ancient Greco world of village heads, of chiefs. Of, we could understand it correctly of superintendents, landlords, estate managers, guardians of a family, of a children, or of a property. Uh, have charge over. This is the same word, actually, that was translated. I read 1 Timothy 5.17 earlier in its entirety, but in the middle of that verse when Paul says, he who leads with diligence, he who has charge over with diligence. Or in 1 Timothy 3.4.5, this might be an even better one to kind of wrap our minds around this. That's where Paul told Timothy about the qualification, the sine qua non requirement qualification for one that would be a shepherd over the flock of God is namely, does he manage his family well? Does he have charge over his family well? 1 Timothy 3, 4, and 5, it is one who manages his own household well, who has charge over his own household well. And then in verse 5, if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And that is why the sine qua non proving ground for spiritual leadership is the man's family. And beloved, in the economy of God, I said this before, but I'll say it again, the family leadership structure parallels the family of God leadership structure. And that is why, as I also indicated before, when Jesus, the chief shepherd, delegates the privileged oversight of the flock of God, which he purchased with his own blood to these under-shepherds, these are men who are over other people and men who are under Christ. These are men over the flock and men who are always, essentially, must be in heart and mind and soul under our Lord Jesus Christ. So like a commanding officer or a presiding official standing before, standing over, the shepherd of God su supports, cares for, protects the flock of God. And this is kind of the same stream of thought that Paul, remember back in chapter 2, when Paul likened pastoral care to parental care. And he said that we, he, Silas, and Timothy, proved to be, they lived with them, they labored diligently among them, they proved to be like a nursing mother and like a loving father. And then even here back in our text, Paul gives the scope and the domain of this authority, of this oversight. It's in the Lord. So this is spiritual leadership. This is spiritual authority. It doesn't extend to all walks of life. Um, we don't have it here, but I've seen in other churches where you may have an elder, you may have a pastor that has someone in his flock that he has spiritual oversight over, spiritual authority over, as vested by God, and that person may be his supervisor, his boss in the real world. So this is oversight, this is authority in the Lord, spiritual. And beloved, 
these men, your leaders, are responsible. They're not responsible. We're not responsible to the congregation. We are responsible for the congregation. That's the grammar here. Now, to be sure, there is a uniform discipleship, iron sharpening, uh, sharp, uh, iron sharpening iron dimension to this at all levels. But the grammar here points towards the authority and responsibility for the congregation. We look after the people of God. We shepherd the flock of God as men who must give an account, according to the author of Hebrews chapter 13. And this is a man, as Paul had brought out earlier, back in chapter 2, describing the model shepherd. This is a man who lives the life that he wants his people to live. He lives what he wants his people to become by precept and by example. So the shepherd of God serves the church, oversees the church, and admonishes the sheep. At the end of verse 12, he says, and give you, or almost at the end, and give you instruction. Literally, put in mind, place in the mind. This word, nutheteo, translated as give you instruction. This is the word that is at the center of biblical counseling. This word, whenever it appears in Scripture, always describes putting the Word of God into the mind. And this is correction delivered by the Word of God. Now, for the context of the Thessalonians, which, as I indicated before, would really parallel the context of Santan Bible Church, this is to continue the pattern, and in their case, to correct a problem or to prevent a problem. Uh, This is translated, the word give instruction here is translated in every other appearance in the New Testament as admonish, as admonish. And this admonishment, beloved, from a faithful shepherd does not involve a superior tone or a harsh spirit. It can't involve a superior tone or a harsh spirit. This is not heavy-handedness. This is brotherliness. Leon Morris, the commentator, said, while the tone is brotherly, it's big brotherly. This is on parallel level ground here, and at the same time, there is this hierarchical role relationship that Paul brings out. And beloved, for every Christian, for every man and woman of God, the question that we always, a few questions we need to ask ourselves is, am I ready to be instructed? Am I ready to be admonished? Am I ready to be corrected? Am I ready to be, have my life, my behavior, my thinking, my practice, my ministry put under the spotlight of the refining power of the word of God by virtue of my brothers and sisters in Christ? So that is an attitude of appreciation that God encourages you to have towards your shepherds. Then there's also an attitude of affection in verse 13. Paul continues, and that you esteem them very highly. Uh, Very highly, that doesn't describe the extreme intense nature of this word. One commentator called this Greek word that's translated here as very highly a double compound long word. Another called it a Pauline triple intensive. Um, we, could, we could understand it as a hyper superlative. This means immeasurably more than anything you can think of. Uh, to give you an example, Paul used the same word back in Ephesians chapter 3 when he was talking about our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 20, Paul said, To him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. 
exceedingly, abundantly beyond. Same word, what he is saying here is, dear brother and sister in Christ, esteem your shepherds exceedingly, abundantly beyond what you can think of, this hyper superlative. What God is saying, beloved, is that the ocean of your esteem for your shepherd should be spilling over the banks. And then even here, he gives another scope and domain, in love. Esteem them very highly in love, in the love of Christ. And we can ask the question, well, Paul, why should we do that? Should we esteem them exceedingly abundantly beyond what we can imagine because of the office? Because of their prestige? Because of their intellectual acumen? No, look at what he says. Because of their work. It's not because of the office. It's not because of their success. But it's because of their work, their labor, their ministry of love. It's their laboring, their leading, and their feeding. Even tracking the three activities we have of the shepherd. It's not because of their personality their renown, their education, or prominence of the shepherd, it's certainly not because of the preferences of the sheep. It's because of the work of ministry. Uh, another passage that I think helps us understand this, you can listen as I read it, or you can turn to 1 Corinthians 3, verses 4 through 8. Uh, Paul will say to and write to that church, that less mature church, certainly than the Thessalonians, at least as Paul writes this first letter here, this is what he said to the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians 3, verses 4 through 8. The context here is there was division within the body. And Paul says, when one says, I'm of Paul, and another, I'm of Apollos, are you not mere men? What then is Apollos and what is Paul? Servants, through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. And I love that there because Paul is just level setting the reminder and the understanding of God is the one that does the work of the ministry and he even works through us. But he <clears throat> continues, verse 7. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but God who causes the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his office, according to his success, according to his prestige. No, what does he say? Each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor, according to his diligent labor before the Lord. Beloved, biblical ministry is never, ever a matter of popular appeal. And just a side thought before I move on to this last kind of bridge statement at the end of verse 13. We should view, you should view 1 Thessalonians. And I say this, that you should do this, because this is how I now view 1 Thessalonians uh, as part of our going through here. And I didn't have this view before, but you should view, you should join me in viewing 1 Thessalonians as a, something of a precursor to the pastoral epistles of 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus. This is the early writing of the Apostle Paul about what biblical shepherding looks like and even in the context here, what the response of the body needs to be. But then at the end of verse 13, he gives this summary statement, which is actually a command. He says, live in peace with one another. So this is the third time in our text so far where he defines the scope and the domain. We saw earlier in the Lord, in love. Now live in peace. And 
What Paul is saying here is when shepherds are faithful to their responsibilities and when the sheep respond in a matter commensurate with how God commands them, in a way in which God commands them, that will produce peace, stability, and shalom well-being in the body of Christ. And even the grammar that Paul says here, which fits in with what we understand of the Thessalonians, he is not commanding the Thessalonians to make peace. He is commanding them to maintain peace, to keep healthy in this regard. And beloved, we must always be aware that we are engaged in spiritual warfare. The evil one we know is a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. I remember back in uh, September when we were blessed to have the creation conference and the Santan Bible Church Grand Canyon River trip and we had Bill Barrick and Andrew Snelling out for that. Uh, Monday morning after the river trip when I was giving Bill and Andrew a ride to the airport, I dropped Bill off at Terminal 4 and then I took Andrew on to Terminal 3, so I had about five minutes with him. And of course, both of them were very effusive in their praise. They were just, oh, Sandhan Bible Church is incredible. There's everything you have going here. The, the weird thing, I don't, I don't know why he did this, but in that little short time between Terminal 4 and Terminal 3, Andrew said, oh, Clay, Sandhan Bible. I, I'm not a very good you know, imitating Australian accent, but you get the point. Oh, Clay, uh, Santan Bible Church is great. Then, then he said this. He goes, you know what? He goes, be careful because Satan's going to attack you. Whenever, whenever church is going well and things are stable, you can be sure that Satan will go after it. Now, he's not a mystic or anything like this. And I remember the time just thinking, that's so strange. What a, <laughs> what a weird thing to say right at the very end. But beloved, we are engaged in a spiritual warfare. And the evil one is an expert at infiltration and masterful at sowing the seeds of bitterness and disgruntlement. And even when we think of a healthy church like the Thessalonians, when we think of a healthy church like Santan Bible Church, beloved, mark this, complacency is a killer. John Stott said this in the context of Paul's charge here that we're studying, quote, the combination of appreciation and affection will enable pastors and people to live in peace with one another. Yet in too many churches, they're at loggerheads, which is painful to those involved, inhibiting to the church's life and growth, and damaging to its public image. Another commentator said this, conflicts in the church, whether between leaders, between leaders and members, or even between members can, quote, obliterate a ministry, even among two people. By way of a biblical example, do you remember when Paul wrote to the church in Philippi, in Philippians 4, a church that gave him great joy, he made a pastoral personal appeal to two women, to Euodia and Syntyche. Now, Pastor Paul, of course, had, I'm sure, great concern for these two women, but the main reason why he wrote that in the letter and why God inscripturated that in his holy word was because the conflict and the bitterness and division between even just two members of the body can potentially obliterate a ministry. That is what is at stake. Leon Morris, who I quoted before, had this other good statement in this context of this passage. He said this, quote, When we're continually critical of our leaders set over us, it's small wonder they can't perform the miracles we demand of them. Leaders can never do their best work when they're subject to carping criticism from those who should be their followers. Good leaders need good followers, end quote. Beloved, that is part of what Paul's saying here. Now, I will say this. This is a both and. 
the thrust of Paul here, the word of God here, is directed towards the sheep. But there is another side of that. If you want to know if a man is a good leader, look behind him. Is anyone following him? Point is, good leaders will produce good followers. But the thrust here is for, is the onus, is the responsibility of the body. And so, beloved, Santan Bible Church, the ones who work tirelessly, know your shepherds. The ones who are fully devoted 24-7 to your spiritual well-being. Gary, David, Tim, Scott, Mike, Justin, know your shepherds. Respect them, esteem them, love them. Respect your leaders. That's the first word from God to you and to me. The second word in verses 14 and 15 is refine your brothers. Some of you may know this, some of you may, may not. Every particle in the universe exerts gravitational pull on every other particle. So Kevin and Kristen, you are exerting gravitational pull on each other. Now, now this isn't the affection of the husband and wife, that's a different dynamic. Uh, you're doing that. You exercise, each of us exerts a gravitational pull on the sun and on the moon. Now, the reality is from our perception, the only one that we can feel, that we can really experientially understand is the gravitational pull of the earth. Now, in the same way and in a different way, every member of the body has a responsibility to every other member of the body. In contrast, whereas the only gravitational pull that we can feel is that of the earth, beloved, we feel the pull, the responsibility of every member to every other member. Now, to be sure, there's a framework instruction. In other words, a man doesn't go up and rebuke a woman. There's different ways in which you have children, parents, husbands, and wives. There are different wisdoms that get play in there. But the point that God brings out here is every member of the body has a responsibility and a care and a concern and a ministry for every other member of the body. You see, that is because godly shepherds don't monopolize ministries. Godly shepherds Shepherds multiply ministries. And you can be sure of this. If there's a leader that thinks he's key to a certain ministry, you can be sure that God will change the locks. So no one is beyond replacement. No one is beyond the work of God. That's why I look at verse 14. Paul says, and we urge you, brethren. Again, it's the same audience that he is primarily addressing here, which is the body of believers in Thessalonica. We urge you, there's a stronger command here. This is more authoritative than the friendly, polite appeal and request that he gave back in verses 12 and 13. And this more authoritative urging here is still given to the congregation, the members. The leaders are included in a secondary context. Paul addresses the bodies, not the leaders directly. And this is kind of fascinating. I think this indicates that, again, we know Timothy's report that he came back when he brought back the intel, the recon that he gathered when Paul had sent him back to Thessalonica. He had a very positive, good report regarding the church in Thessalonica. There were some little issues here and there that really spawned some of the writing that Paul has seen here. But what's fascinating is the fact that he directly addresses the congregation without any word regarding the leaders that he appeals them to respect tells us that those leaders were exercising their ministry responsibilities faithfully. Not perfectly on this side of eternity, but they were doing it well before the Lord. And 
when we think of this exhortation of how we are to be used by God to refine our brothers, this really answers one of the earliest questions that was ever posed by a man. So to Cain's question, the answer is yes. You are your brother's keeper. So respect those above you and encourage those around you. And what we have here in verse 14 is a ministry to the problem children in the church. This is the area, the unruly, the faint-hearted, and the weak. So when we think of these problem children, the question is, do we confront them or do we comfort them? Do we encourage them or do we rebuke them? And the answer, depending on the group, depending on the situation, may be yes. It may be one or it may be the other. And what Paul does here is he gives a back-to-basics instruction. The first group of problem children that he talks about here of the ministry of the body is the unruly. You see, what does our culture tell us? What does the world tell us? Our culture, we idolize ease and we worship comfort. It's kind of like captured with the statement, hard work pays off over time, laziness pays off now. That's what the world says. Or we can borrow wisdom from Stephen Wright, eagles may soar, but a weasel never got sucked into an engine. (laughs) You see, that's what the world says, or what Stephen Wright says. What God says here is, you admonish the unruly, admonish the undisciplined, the disorderly. Uh, The word unruly, this was a military term that would describe a soldier who broke rank. And this, some of your translations may say idle instead of unruly. This is not merely being idle. This is loafing. This is shirking duty. This word is only used in the New Testament in the Thessalonian epistles. It's used here, and then in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 in verses 5 and 7, it's translated as unruly or undisciplined. Or in verse 11, 2 Thessalonians 3, Paul writes there, we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, an unruly life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. You see, this is the picture of a soldier who shirks his duty, and as a result of that is a danger to himself and a danger to every other soldier in his troop, in his platoon. And what are we to do? We are to admonish them. We are to give instruction to the same word that we looked at before in verse 12 of the shepherds who give instruction. The responsibility, this responsibility of the ministry of admonishment is not just for the leaders. It's for the entire body. This is not some special ministry or gift. This is part, beloved, this is part of everyday Christian ministry, fellowship, and life. Paul uses the same word and has the same charge later on when he writes to the church in Rome, Romans 15, verse 14. He says, concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and watch this, able also to admonish one another. That's the charge, beloved, that God gives you in 1 Thessalonians and even in Romans. And we should understand this is not God deputizing us to be the holy police with a bronze star on our chest to give attention to every minor infraction. There is a biblical shepherding balance and care and concern captured very well uh, with Paul's words to the church in Galatia. Galatians 6.1, there Paul said, Brethren, 
And again, brethren, that's a beautiful word that would include brothers and sisters. Brethren, even if a man is caught up in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Each one looking to yourself, lest you too be tempted. So, we are to minister to the unruly. The second group of problem children that Paul brings out here is the faint-hearted. Continuing on, the middle of verse 14, encourage the faint-hearted, the small-souled, those that are despondent, the discouraged. This is the only appearance of the Greek word translated faint-hearted, but it is also used in the Greek translation of Isaiah chapter 35, verse 4, where it describes those with an anxious heart. Beloved, the faint-hearted in 1 Thessalonians 5, the anxious heart in Isaiah 35 are the people who are trembling under the weight of life's problems. And so, what is our response to them? Do we smack them over the head and say, buck up, cupcake? I mean, that might be tempting, and maybe there's a place for that occasionally with a man-to-man, but no, what he says here is encourage them encourage the faint-hearted come close to them so you can comfort them cheer them up stimulate them help them along and going again to the greatest example the greatest illustration we have our lord and savior jesus christ beloved our gentle lord your gentle lord would not break off a battered reed nor put out a smoldering wick matthew 12 20 so With his loving, shepherding, gentle love and care for his children, we as his children, we encourage rather than goad. We comfort rather than aggravate. We minister to the unruly. We minister to the faint-hearted. The third group of problem children is the weak. He says, help the weak. Now, to be sure, the physically strong should help the physically weak. But in context here, this is referring first and foremost to the spiritually weak. It's the same kind of dynamic as when Paul wrote to Rome, Romans 14.1, accept the one who is weak in faith. And what are we to do to them? We're to help them, to hold them close to ourselves, cling to, be devoted to, hold fast, support. Maybe one word that would capture this very well is uphold them. In the same way, if you have a sprained ankle, you'll put a brace on the sprained ankle to keep it strong and stable till it's fully recovered and strong. In the same way, beloved, we Christians need to understand in the beautiful body of Christ that they're not alone. There are strong Christians who will hold on to them and give them the support they need to grow and to heal until they too are also strong and they can be used by God to be a brace so to speak, to a weaker brother or sister. Romans 15.1, Paul said, we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength. So, beloved, that is our ministry responsibility. That is your brother and sister, Santan Bible Church member. That is your ministry responsibility to the body. And what Paul does here is he moves from the problem children to the whole body, the entire body of believers at the Thessalonian church. He moves from the unruly, faint-hearted, and weak to everyone, and he expands the scope. At the end of verse 14, he says, be patient with all men. Literally, be patient with all. All believers in your local church. That's the first level of expansion that he's talking about here. Be patient. Be Literally, be long-tempered. 
It's interesting, in our English language, we have a word, a compound word, short-tempered or short-fused. It's kind of interesting we don't have a long-tempered uh, word. Maybe the best word that is an existing word, at least I didn't check the dictionary, but long-suffering. That's the kind of patience that he's talking about here. This is an even-tempered response. This is self-restraint without anger in the face of provocation. This is the same kind of thinking, same kind of behavior, same kind of high call from God as Solomon used when he wrote Proverbs 19, verse 11, and they actually used the same Greek word here to translate that, where Solomon wrote, a man's discretion makes him slow to anger, and it's his glory to overlook a transgression. Beloved, your God is compassionate. He is patient. He is long-suffering. So you and I, as his, ch as his children, must do the same. Like Alistair Begg said, we are kids of the kingdom, therefore we should wear the kingdom outfit. Beloved, we're supposed to look like our Father in heaven, who is compassionate, patient, and long-suffering. Or we can think of love, the kind of love that we saw, they esteemed them in love earlier. We can think of Perhaps the greatest treatise, at least in the New Testament on love, 1 Corinthians 13, where Paul gives a litany of different descriptions of what biblical love, the kind of love that we love because God first loved us, and what's the first characteristic at the top of Paul's list? Love is good guess. Love is patient. Love is patient. Beloved, if you take one thing away today, let it be this. Patience tried is love applied. Patience tried is love applied. That is God's command to you and me, to the whole body. And then finally, Paul expands even beyond the walls of the church, so to speak. He says, practice patience in verse 14, and he says, renounce retaliation in verse 15. Verse 15, see that no one repays another with evil for evil. What he's saying here, and this is nothing new. This is not a new commandment. This is an old commandment. Back towards the end of chapter 4, Paul gave new revelation that had never been given before regarding some aspects of the end times. But this no room for personal retaliation revenge among the people of God is nothing new. That was the case for the old covenant people of God, and that's the case for the new covenant people of God. Proverbs 20, verse 22 God said there, do not say I will repay evil. Wait for the Lord and he will save you. Paul will later say, Romans 12, 17, never pay back evil to anyone. You see, the world says, if somebody wrongs me, if somebody offends me, I've got to get my pound of flesh. And if they took one pound, I'm going to take 10 pounds. That's what the world says. What God says is, believer, son, and daughter of God, run away from your natural tendency of grace for me and judgment for thee. Now, for the unsaved person, that's the natural tendency of their whole being, grace for me and judgment for thee. For us as believers, we have a new inner man or a new inner woman, but we're trapped in this body of death. We're seeking to mortify, put to death the deeds of the flesh. So that's why God says run away from the tendency when you're in Christ for personal retaliation and personal revenge. And he kicks it up a notch, and this is staggering. God doesn't merely forbid retaliation. He says replace the harmful with the helpful. Heal rather than hurt. 
That's why I look at the end of verse 15. He says, but always seek after, always diligently pursue that which is good for one another and for all men, literally, and for all. So whereas before, back in verse 14, the all there expanded from the problem children to the whole body, what he does here is he expands not just from the body, but to all men and women, believers and unbelievers. And in case we think there's a loophole somewhere, he uses the language, he says, no one, always, all. And understand this, do you remember that what Paul and what the Thessalonian believers will have in mind is most likely, almost certainly, the persecutors and the slanderers, the very men, and perhaps men and women, that drove Paul, Silas, and Timothy out from Thessalonica and are now persecuting and slandering the Thessalonian believers. And this here is also nothing new. Even this escalation from not just seeking personal retaliation, but to actually seek good, this is part of the very heartbeat of the teaching of Jesus Christ. In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, verse 44, do you remember Jesus taught, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That's a difficult pill to swallow, but swallow it we must. Peter 1 Peter 3.9 says, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you are called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. Beloved, every wrong we suffer, every wrong you suffer, understand this. That's an opportunity for you to display some measure of the character and grace and love of Christ. That's why Paul writes what he writes here. That's why God counsels you and me as he does here. And beloved, this is a beautiful picture of mutual comfort and encouragement, of mutual long-suffering and service. And by the way, this is absolutely unequivocally mandatory for the pulpit, and here it is absolutely necessary in the pew. It is a both and. So beloved, this is God's formula for a healthy church, a model church, an example church, from the inside out, beginning with the leaders and absolutely going out to the body. And we can't rest on our laurels. Uh, Stott said very well, Christian complacency is a particularly horrid condition. And I realized in the first service that when I read that, it's, that's probably what I had in my brain when I wrote my other statement earlier about the com that uh, complacency is a killer. You see, when things are going well at a church for a long time, there's always the danger of a we've arrived mentality. Don't move my cheese mentality. We don't do it that way. A good old boy's mentality. And beloved, God gives us everything we need right here, the formula for Santan Bible Church to stay and remain a healthy, thriving, vibrant church, glorifying God, loving one another, and providing a powerful witness to a lost and dying world. Please join me as we go to the Lord in prayer. Lord Jesus, even now as we approach the communion table, we thank you, Lord, for the work that you have done in each of our lives individually when you rescued us, when you bought us, when you purchased us, when you redeemed us, when you justified us, when you made us a new creature in you. And we praise you and thank you for the work you're doing in each of us individually now and us as a church and we look forward to even greater things ahead. What that, those greater things may look like, Lord, it's not about success. It's not about popular appeal. It's about what is glorifying to you, what is a blessing to one another. 
and what is a powerful witness to this dark world. May you be glorified in all that we do. And Lord Jesus, we thank you for the great price you paid at the cross to give us this gift of salvation. As we approach the communion table, we pray that you will be glorified and blessed. We pray that we'll be encouraged and galvanized as we remember the price that you paid. It is for your glory and for your honor, Lord, that we pray and we approach the table. Amen.